I swear I didn't plan this. <laughs> but, um, sorry, scooching my lunch out of the way here. I was just talking about presentation, and this is a this episode's actually a pretty good example of this. Let's rewind a second here. This is written by Sussman and Strong. I've mentioned them before, and I will bring them up again. Sussman in particular will be back uh, in season four, in particular. In particular, particularly, Sussman will particularize all the particulars. Now, this was originally supposed to be a story dragging the Defiant into this continuity. No, not the one you're probably thinking of. The one from TOS, the Tholian Web, the first Defiant. The one that was part of that episode and later would become a part of Inamir Darkly. That episode uh, obviously didn't happen for various executive reasons, but I'm actually kind of amused by the way they shot it down, because they shot it down because they didn't want to have the temptation of the Defiant there. They couldn't just etch-a-sketch the end of the episode like they do in this one. They wanted to have their and then everything's wrapped up in the last five minutes. You know, the total contrast to the previous episode. What's funny is this is framed in almost every way like one of those episode of the week episodes I was just talking about. Even though this is supposed to be the arc episode. And the last episode wasn't, but is. I'm not... Anyways, I'm just going to blame time travel. So the first thing we see... It's like, oh my god, there's this ship, and they build up, and they build up, and they build up. It's Caldano! Okay, real quick. How many of you get that? I'm actually kind of curious. Normally I don't explain the references I make in these, because that's how you do referential humor. You don't explain it. People just get it or they don't. But um, I'm, I'm legitimately curious if anybody's going to catch on to that. Anyways, so they mentioned that, oh my god, there's another human that's out this far. It's almost like we're back to random episodes of the week when we're out exploring. Huh. You know, <laughs> I'm not against that. It's just, I feel like that shouldn't be immediately next to the episode, which is right next to the Vulcan border, which we just referenced. And again, remember, several things that have been happening in Season 2 have been much closer to, you know, home space than they have anything else. Either way, we do have an interesting hook. It's a human. Way out here. And honestly, even if they were still in home space, but reasonably far, you know, farther out than the humans have been, that would still be question mark worthy. So it wouldn't really change that at all. We could headcanon that pretty smoothly. What's also interesting, though, is they mention Cochrane. If I didn't know any better, that would kind of be a thought I would think, too, except for the fact that the only way to even think of that as a problem would be to already be cognizant of the fact that this isn't Cochrane. It's just interesting, because we know anybody who's aware of the continuity will look at this and be like, well, this can't be Cochrane. We know exactly what happened to Cochrane. We've already had an episode about it. He was basically the star of his own book. Good book. Highly recommend it. Federation, by the way, is the name of the book. But, um, whatever. They mention, okay, well, let's look over this thing. And there's, I'm just going to kind of rush through this. I'm going to go ahead and be honest. Um, this part of my notes here, like the first well, fifth or so, is about 20 minutes of the episode. Not a lot seems to be happening that's really worth discussing. A couple things jump out at me. They mentioned the Earth Cargo Authority. Now, it's been over a year since I recorded the last bundle of these. I will admit, I don't remember every detail about those. I have a pretty good memory for this stuff, but not that good. I don't remember if I commented on this the last time it showed up. Why don't we have that show? The Earth Cargo Authority, the everyday worker Star Trek, which is more focused on day-to-day -day life and slice-of-life living rather than there have to be big some crisis. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm insane, dumb, stupid, and crazy. 
or all the above. That's, that's what they tell me, at least. But I find myself thinking that there's... Oh, as time has gone on, I have seen more and more uh, shows, movies, and comics, actually, specifically, that have, and games, actually, while we're on the subject, that have proven that it doesn't always have to be some big thing. There doesn't have to be some big villain, there doesn't have to be some big crisis, there doesn't have to be some big threat. Sometimes you can just do a story, an entire story arc, not just an episode, but a whole show, or a whole game, or a whole movie, or whatever, just about day-to-day -day living. It's interesting how you can make something as absolutely mundane as... Oh my gosh, I think there's a misunderstanding, and I just want to make sure to clarify with this friend of mine before they do anything stupid. Oh, it wasn't a big deal anyways, but actually they were worried about this other thing because their father just got diagnosed with cancer. You know, and then, and that's it, right? Even that's probably too high tier, but you know what I mean? Those kind of slice of life things. I've heard those called sitcoms, but I try not to use that terminology since, well, if I use the word sitcom, I mean it as an insult, and that's not what I mean here. I mean, just, just that kind of everyday living thing is the kind of thing I kind of wish we had more of in fantastical scenarios. An everyday life show in Star Trek, or Forgotten Realms, to use a fantasy example, or Azeroth, to use another one. You know, I, I feel like there's potential there that is rather untapped. I have seen a few, just a few, that have started peeking into that, and I've liked what I've seen, so I, I know it's proven. It, it, it's, a, it's a proof of uh, the concept is proven at this point. But I find myself thinking about what it would be like following a group of people on the Earth Cargo Authority and just... I don't know. Anyways, we're moving on, we're moving on. So we see the TARDIS, sorry, the pod, which has the transcendental dimensions going on. Apparently, several people involved in the making of this episode were actually legitimately concerned about that, legal issues being what they are. It's also interesting the pod is smashed up on the inside as well. Then the Suliban show, shows up, and I actually made a note here. Did they cloak, or is this bad writing? Now, if you're... Again, you're probably looking at me like, Lord, you're an idiot. Because they do then cloak immediately thereafter, right? So, okay, it's cloaking. The reason I mentioned that, though, is the writing... Let me be more clear. The dialogue in this episode sucks. To be as nice about that as I possibly can. It just kept jumping out at me how weird and awkward and... For lack of a better way to put it, Hollywoody the dialogue was. You may have just solved the greatest mystery of our time. If not, hesitate for a second. I may have found an even bigger mystery. Yeah! It's just, I, I don't... <laughs> and it's it, that's the one example I wrote down, and the one I, I made sure to remember so I could share with you. But it's constant. It's a non-stop thing. How, the Suliban are destroyed. How many ships? Pause for emphasis. All of them. Because that totally wasn't implied by my previous sentence or anything like that. I, what? The dialogue is bad. Now you're probably thinking, Lore, you're being too critical. And you're right. But you remember what I mentioned about presentation? This is actually a surprisingly well-presented episode. And the reason I don't want to say the writing is bad is because it's not. Writing is, as always, a bit of a gradient across multiple different things. That's why I specifically single out the dialogue here. One of the things that the writing does surprisingly well is pacing, the ever-elusive pacing. Now, good pacing, I've been analyzing fiction for nine to nine and a half years at this point, as of my recording this, over like a ten and a half years by the time you actually watch this. But from right now, nine and a half years. And pacing is always frustrating because I always have the hardest time explaining it to people. It's how exactly the events flow through each other and the tempo at which events happen next to each other. By which I mean, 
highs, lows, mediums, right, in terms of intensity. Now, intensity doesn't mean action necessarily. In fact, a high action moment can be a low. How many of you have ever seen a bit of a movie, for example, where there's this big section and there's explosions everywhere and they're charging through and it's silent and there's either quiet music or nothing playing and it's in kind of slow motion because it's a big tragic moment. That's actually a down in terms of tempo, right? It can be an up in a quiet moment. Like, say someone's walking through, uh, we'll use the stereotypical example, there's a, a serial killer on the loose, and there's and someone's sneaking through the house trying to figure out where the killer is, and it's it's very quiet, and it's very dark, and you barely see anything. And the tension is, if, if properly done, is the super wire, taut tension, right? That's a high. It's It's all about the tempo of what kind of scene it is, okay? And pace is how it goes back and forth between highs and lows. Now, the reason I, I blathered on about all that is because, A, I get that question all the time, so please forgive me. But B, because one of the things that uh, I tend to get asked is, well, what's good pacing? Good pacing is, is something you know when you see it. Generally speaking, having a good momentum back and forth between highs and lows is good pacing. But I can name a video game right off the top of my head, Earthbound, that does this, and then this. And that's still good pacing. Or, uh, what's another one? Now, now, now you're going to challenge me. Um, I'm sorry, I did that in reverse. Earthbound actually goes down, not up. My bad, Earthbound goes down. Uh, there's, um, I can't think of a second example right now, and I don't want to sit here too long. So, the point being, it does, there's not like one set pattern for pacing. That being said, there is one set pattern for bad pacing. All lows, all highs. I have an example of that off the top of my head, too. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3, which is just... And after a while, you just kind of get bored of it, right? Bad pacing. Now, what does this movie, what does this episode do? Let's, let's get back to why I think this episode is good pacing. What is this thing? Oh, it's this. The Suliban are attacking. Okay, well, let's try and figure this out. Wait a minute. He's part human and part Vulcan and... Uh, what was the other one? I wrote it down. Uh, Telerian and an, a race he didn't even recognize? Oh, my gosh. And then immediately after that, there's an attack by this other thing. And it's like, okay, now we've got to have this quiet moment. But then we have this thing. And it keeps going back and forth, effectively between mystery and action. And almost every mystery scene smoothly transitions into an action scene. And then every, almost every action scene terminates on a breather moment, which then leads to the next mystery scene. Pacing, right? This might be part of editing and directing, not just scripting, but nevertheless, the episode itself is scripted to do this natural flow back and forth. And it helps the episode tremendously because this is kind of a dumb episode in many ways. Um, it's a good time to mention, by the way. The Tholians... I wasn't able to cite an exact source on this, but I believe this with total certainty. However, asterisk, this is not a proven fact, but from what I have read, the Tholians were supposed to be coming back and becoming a major force in the Temporal Cold War in the things that they were already planning at this point, the Season 3 arc, the big Temporal Cold War arc that they were going to do all across Season 3, because by this point, if you're paying attention to the behind-the-scenes stuff, Nemesis has already come out, Nemesis has already bombed, and the studio wasn't doing great in general, and they were already, if you remember, just a non-stop dive in figures. So the money people were starting to pull plugs here and there. And one of the things they wanted to do to shake things up was a season-long arc. That was season three. Tholians were originally, asterisk, probably going to be the, the arc. It was going to be the Tholian arc, right? 
Instead, it's the Zindi arc. What I have not been able to figure out is why. However, I do have a very simple theory. Money. The Tholians are expensive, at least to show. And while, if you remember, there was the Aquatics, for example, amongst the Zindi, they were shown very, very, very little in terms of percentage compared to the other guys who just had Prothesis, which is much cheaper, or very, very a little amount of makeup, which is also much cheaper. So, that's my theory. Either way, if you're wondering why this episode seems to be setting up Season 3 and then is never followed through on, that's probably... Probably, asterisk, why. Pacing, good pacing. And it's well-presented pacing, too. Um, the escalation is also nice, too, if you're paying attention. It's like, okay, so I've got a human. They're, they're multiple species? Hang on, let's find out about the temporal thing. Let's, let's go to Daniel's quarter. Last time we see Daniel's little thing, by the way, his uh, future database. Makes me wonder what happened to that thing, actually. So we see the future database. Yes, I know what you're going to reverence. And, okay, let's check it out here. I'll have to admit, I'm, I, I saw several ships there. I'm sure other people have as well. There's actually a list. I'm not going to give you the whole list. It's just trivia. I just wanted to mention that the ship that jumped out at me immediately was the Dederodax, because that is a beautiful ship and very, very distinct. But anyways, to Paul, this is actually a surprisingly good character moment. And it's one of the other reasons why this episode works for me. It's because T'Pol is clearly visibly bothered by the idea of a Vulcan mating with another species. Now, considering the Vulcans in general have a problem with mating in general, Ponfar, something we have discussed... I'm not sure where this comes in relation to a muck time, but from my perspective, I've already discussed a muck time, where I will discuss that at length. So forgive me for summarizing here, but even all the way back in TOS, Vulcans were really tight-lipped about reproduction. And, you know, okay, I'm with that. I'm with that. We all have our cultural biases. I have cultural biases, you know. Trek's amazing. We're, we're moving on. We're moving on. So, her being wigged out about the that idea actually makes a weird amount of sense. But what I love most is that uh, she, the actress, she does a good job. Miss Blaylock does a good job of effectively portraying someone who is like personally offended or maybe just put off by the idea of like a Vulcan other species hybrid in this case specifically human of course even though other races were involved obviously and she's just kind of uh, i don't know that's just uh and something about that appeals to me not only because of how it shows her inbound biases but it's an interesting insight into vulcan mentality in general and well it shows where we are to help make it more important when we get where we're going right because we know where that's going he, he Archer flat out says, I wonder if I'll have ears. Well, we can ask Spock about that. The first Vulcan we ever saw on this show. Uh, ever, ever, ever. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not exactly like a big surprise, but you get my point. It's important to show this kind of stuff. This is the value of a prequel. You can show where we started to see where we end up. So that when we start where we actually started, we can see how we reached the point of startation, having started at a different point when we... So, <clears throat> this leads right into the Tholians. So the Tholians finally show up. First thing, the Tholians say it's dangerous to you. Okay, cool. And then they do a really good... This is where the good writing comes in as well, because they do a good job of establishing how dangerous the Tholians are without just making them a threat of the weak. I like TNG, okay? <laughs> I do. And I like 
a decent chunk of Voyager. But one of the things that bothered me both most about both is the the overuse of the threat of the week and the improper use of the threat of the week. If this was either of those shows, the Tholians would show up and just be like, and we've, we've been disabled and our computers have been hacked and there's a super virus and I've been mutated into a salamander and just all sorts of random stuff would be happening, right? Because they would just utterly crush. Instead, the Tholians are powerful and it's established in two major ways that the Tholians are very strong here. Number one, they grab a tractor beam onto the Enterprise and start pulling it out of warp. Which, admittedly, is actually really stupid. As I said, this whole episode is kind of stupid. Temporal radiation, what? But pulling a ship, but basically being able to pull against a ship going at warp, that's impressive. The second thing is later on, which I'll get to that in a minute. But they do a good job with that. You'll notice the Tholians are also well-written. Probably the best dialogue in the episode. The Tholians are their usual Tholian self. And I will be talking about this, slash, have talked about this during the, the Tholian web over in TOS. They're like, hey, um, so we're not unwilling to bargain. We're not unwilling to talk or negotiate. In fact, the Tholians are quite reasonable beings to interact with. But they don't put up with anything. No social niceties. No waste of time. They, the, the Tholian is the kind of person, there's people like this in real life. In fact, I've seen people like this. Don't know any personally. Um, so feel free to oust yourself in chat, if, or excuse me, in, in comments if you're one of them. But uh, some people will just be the kind of person to go to the store, grab this, walk up, get transaction, leave. You know, no no small talk. No, hey, how's it going? Did you find everything you need? Yep, yeah, uh-huh. Well, you know how it is nowadays. No, instead the Tholian will be like, I need that with this and this. And they're not trying to be rude. They are rude, but they're not trying to be. So they arguably aren't intentionally rude, which is important. Instead, they're just very, very blunt. I've said it before, and I will say this again. I think I'd actually get along pretty well with the Tholians, because I get that mentality completely. I am not that way. I'm basically the opposite of it. But their mentality makes sense. You'll notice they do that in this episode constantly. We are here for the ship. Uh, more info, please? The ship will harm you. Uh, okay, no. And then so they're like, all right, well, the moment Archer is like, no, let's talk about this, the Tholians say, okay, well, that's the end of the conversation. Let's just go ahead and take it. Archer threatens them, so they say, okay, we'll be back with more ships. Right? There's actually a weird logic to it. You'll also notice, and this is fascinating, and this is well-written as well, the Tholians are not evil in this episode. They damage the Vulcan ship, but do not destroy, probably because the Vulcans knew well enough not to fight back. And you'll also notice that the Enterprise knows well enough not to fight back against the Tholians. The Sulaban, they try to destroy the Tholians. Guess what the Tholians do to the Sulaban? I point that out because, again, that is very Tholian in mentality, isn't it? almost Titan think, if you want to put it in that way. Because they could, they're they like, okay, like even at the end, Archer comments on it, wow, they just let us go. Of course they did. They had no reason to kill you. They don't have spite. And even if they did, they wouldn't give a damn. They've got other things on their mind. They lost their target. Well, that sucks. <laughs> Moving on. But the Suliban were actively trying to destroy them. So, oh, well, yeah, now we have to destroy you. It's interesting to think about. Um, so, pardon me, are, 
I, okay, I have to comment on this. So T'Pol is like, oh, time travel totally doesn't exist, even though it totally does. And we all roll our eyes at her and move on. But you know what I find funniest about this? And this is the only thing I find worthy of commentary here. She is skeptical of time travel because of logic. Let me say that again in case I misspoke. In Star Trek, a character is skeptical of how time travel is presented because of logic. That amused me tremendously. <laughs> so, then we have probably the best scene in the whole episode. And again, why I while I bang on about the dialogue being bleh, there's still some good character moments. You know, with T'Pol, and there's still good pacing, and then there's this moment. It's between Reed and Tucker. You, and I'm going to ask you this question, you have the option to meet the person of your life, right? The one person will make you truly happy, whatever it is, and the two of you will match together and it'll be great. And you can go into the future and know that knowledge. And then you meet that person and yada, 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 and finally you meet them. So Tucker asked the question, so why'd you marry him? Was it for love or was it because the book told you? Now that's a good question and it's a philosophical point. If you know the future and then complete the future, well, doesn't that remove free will from the equation? Now, I actually don't agree with that, but that is something that can be debated, and something I've heard as an argument against type 1 time travel, for example. Reed's response is also interesting in its own right. As long as we're happy together, why does it matter? Now, that's actually, believe it or not, more of a pragmatic take on it, rather than the more emotive, moralistic take. But it is interesting to think about as well. If... I, I mean, if you are told, you will, like, okay, let's let's take this in a slightly different direction. Let's say you are told up front, somehow, you will meet this person over there and you'll be, you'll be in love with them forever. And you link up and it turns, Final Fantasy XII, Princess Ashelia Blah 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 Dalmasca, I always forget her middle name. And Prince, I forget his name because he dies in the intro. That's not a spoiler, he dies in the intro. The two of them were betrothed because political reasons. It was a political marriage. So you are going to marry them. It was enforced upon them. They know this. And yet, by coincidence, they did like each other. And they were happy together. And there was a possibility, if he hadn't died in the beginning, of there being a long and, and fruitful relationship there. That has actually happened in real life, too. Rarely. But it has happened where a political match has led to you know, them actually being happy together. Similar concept. Does it matter that you're only married to them in order to secure an alliance with Spain? Or does it, more, does it matter more that you are legitimately happy with this person? It's just interesting to think about. And of course, I'm just focusing on the romance aspect here, but this could apply across the board. Let's say you read up in the future and it finds out that you ended up becoming a cartographer. And right now you're a, a, a shoe salesman. You're like, well, I'm going to become a cartographer and you're super happy about it. And blah, 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 blah. It's the same question at that point. Is it because you chose to be a cartographer, or is it because a book told you you were going to be it, right? And there's obvious bleed, bleed over on both of these things. It's a fascinating concept, and there's a lot that could be discussed about that. Another thing, though, um, and this is the question I asked directly, if you could, if you could read about your future, would you? No judgment either way. I'm, I'm just curious. I always like to pause, pause questions within these ruminations, because I love to hear your guys' answers in the comments section. I would. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Oh, yes. Give me the cheat codes. Here, hang on, hang on. Let me see here. Okay. Um, let's skip ahead to 2021 here. 
Wait, what? Even after the earthquake? Anyways. So, you get the point. <laughs> so then we see the time loop. Not terrible. It almost feels tacked on. Because, near as I can tell, the only real reason for the time loop, other than, okay, this is kind of neat, is so that they could have the extra tension at the end. That's whatever. I've seen better time loops in this very franchise. So... That's whatever. I'm I'm just kind of uh, average on that. They do a decent job of showcasing it, but they're clearly rushed, and they clearly were spending most of their time elsewhere. This then leads to to Paul being like, oh yeah, also temporal radiation, whatever. This then leads to to Paul saying, so we have a problem. We have two hostile powers that we know of that are after this, and we've got the radiation, which is probably causing issues. And who knows what that's doing to machinery, right? So what do you do about that? It's a good question. What's doubly interesting is Archer's reaction. Now, this is the other question I have for you guys. Do you agree with Archer? And on the off chance you don't remember, here's what he his, his stance. I'm sick and tired of this temporal Cold War affecting us. I want some kind of weapon slash information slash edge to be able to use against the temporal Cold War, against these people who are interfering with my time. If that sounds familiar, then just remove the word temporal and think about how much proxy stuff was happening during the real-life Cold War, and you see the point here. So, again, no judgment whether you agree with him or not. It is an interesting thought. What makes me think most about it, though, is I find myself wondering how many factions of the Temporal Cold War are factions of the Temporal Cold War because another faction was messing with their timeline. They had enough. They got access to some temporal tech and information and became an active faction in the temporal Cold War. Again, real-life parallels. There's also a nice bit. He mentions we're involved whether we want to be or not. Again, proxy stuff. That's kind of the whole point. There's also this really nice tidbit. Credit once again to the actress, uh, Miss Blaylock, who does a... I, I never realized until I started doing these ruminations... How good of an actress she is in this role. It's actually impressive. Because playing a Vulcan's hard to begin with. Playing the nuances that she manages is much harder. There's this wonderful tidbit where they see the Vulcan ship, which has been pummeled. And this is before they, they find out that they're alive. And, and her voice just has this hesitant tremble to it. As if she is not sure she wants to see the information she's scanning there. It's very slight. It's, it's, but it's there, and it's good, and I love it. Quick aside, there's this little bit where the Suliban, uh, just before that, actually, sorry, I'm saying this out of order, I apologize, I wrote my notes out of order here. There's this bit where the Suliban, he's like, we've got a Vulcan ship coming, the Suliban says, and I quote, no Vulcan ship would ever risk their ship for an Earth vessel. You remember what I keep talking about the Sengoku Jedi thing, and the different factions, and how nobody's an ally with anyone else? It's interesting that even in this episode, which has nothing to do with the political climate of Sector 001, they still have that tiny little reference to it, because it's just so normal that no faction will stick out their neck for another faction, that the Suliban would automatically presume the Vulcans wouldn't have their back, even though they did. Military allies. Anywho, probably, if we're being honest, even though this was absolutely not intended by the authors, probably reinforced by the recent treaty which the humans helped them with against the Andorians, right? 
Anywho, so then the Tholians walk up. This is the second time the Tholians are established as properly powerful. This is what you call death walking. Now, I've talked about death walking before, but in the off chance you haven't heard me talk about it, it's a very specific slice of character development. It's usually done on purpose. Uh, sometimes it's aspect of video gameplay that's unrelated. But it's usually done on purpose to demonstrate when someone is so powerful that they don't have to try to defeat their enemy. That's the important part. That they could just walk casually through the enemy, literally or metaphorically, and not have to put effort into defeating them. If you have to fight and work and, and, and be efficient and you know, use this spell on this cooldown or whatever and then hit this button and blow up this ship in order to be able to take out these other ships, if you have to put that kind of thought and effort into it, that's not death walking. That's just a fight. Death walking is when you're just like, excuse me, excuse me, Vader, Rogue One. <laughs> it's just playing at that point. And that's exactly what happens with the Tholians. The Tholians show up, and the Tholians take no losses and no appreciable damage, as they just kind of walk through the Suliban ships. This is admittedly kind of a borderline case. This isn't a perfect case, because we won't get to see it, because most of it's just dialogue. But nevertheless, we just, it's like, yeah, the entire Suliban fleet just kind of... As they try to fight the Tholians. Also a nice way to establish the Tholians, by the way. It's a shame they're not Zindi. Anyways... So, the Suliban get crushed. We see the loop. As I am recording this, AGDQ is happening. Uh, so I guess this is technically 2021, but um, I keep forgetting that it is. Um, I mention that because one of the things that comes into speedrunning is trying to do a task over and over and over to perfect it. Right? To do as good a job as you can. It, it's self-competition because you want to be like, No, I could, I could shave off three seconds off that time. I could beat that boss better, you know, right? It's something I love about it. I was talking about it just this morning on stream. And I mentioned that because it feels like that's kind of what they're doing. Is they're okay, we've unhooked the warhead. Uh, okay, we're back. Let's unhook the warhead even faster. And you notice they actually do get a little bit faster and more efficient each time. That is kind of horrifying. But again, also just kind of there to add to the tension of the scene. So whatever. So they do it, and they get the warhead, and the last minute the hero has succeeded. And this is my third favorite part of the episode. The first was the discussion between Reed and Tucker. The second was the DePaul character stuff. The third is that they go through this big lastish effort and Archer stands up to be the hero and it means nothing. I know that sounds cynical, but I like the fact that Archer doesn't save the day. That despite all their efforts, the Tholians win because the Tholians just have them that outclassed. They get the warhead out. They try to detonate the sucker. Nope, Tholians disabled it. Game. Meanwhile... Tucker has reactivated the, the, you know, the ping, the transmitter, the temporal transmitter. So the people in the future are like, oh, it's right there. And we'll see him again in Star Trek Online. It's a nice ending. And the episode ends a little bit on a pad ending. It's more of a wah-wah, but it's a nice little thing. And I do have to admit, I like the fact that Archer goes out of his way to say that, you know, he's going to apologize to the Vulcans. And he's going to say thank you to the Vulcans for the trouble and for the aid. Again, those two factions getting closer and closer is, in my opinion, what should have been the big background arc of early Enterprise and something I'm going to be pushing a lot in the rewrite project. So, Overall, a stupid episode that I enjoyed much more than I thought I would. Season 2 has been very inconsistent in its quality. and I don't know, this one's been interesting. This one's been interesting. But for now, I'm going to chop off, and I'll see you guys next time.